It can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Carter Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers, and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights, and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com. Welcome to the Bloomberg PL podcast. I'm Pim Fox along with my co host, Lisa Abramowitz. Each day, we bring you the most important, noteworthy, and useful interviews for you and your money, whether you're at the grocery store or the trading floor. Find the Bloomberg PL podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, and at Bloomberg.com. Well, his stock is down, but he's ready to get up and fly. And he's here to give us a little bit of, oh, come on, love, is Gary Kelly. He's the chief executive of Southwest Air. Great to have you with her, Mr. Kelly. It is great to be with you. Thank well, you. I was able to get all three of these things together in, in one, you know, sort of, <laughs> it was not even an iambic so pentameter, pim. right? Oh, my God. Okay. So, all right. So, I, let's, yeah, I, let's I, do I it in that order. It. Talk about what's down. Talk about what's up. And then uh, tell us about, uh, uh, you know, what's next. You know, it was a great quarter. Let's start with the second quarter. Our unit revenues were up uh, right in the range that we had anticipated. And uh, that was a nice improvement. And we saw some increase. Uh, we saw some growth in in our average fares if, for the in, first hold on, time let me, in about I, I, two I beg years. your pardon. I don't mean to. I mean to interrupt you, but I mean, if if if, the, if all what you're saying is accurate, and I and I got that from your perspective, then why would the stock uh, uh, be reacting uh, the way it is? And also, um, uh, in your mind, does that mean that you're somehow you weren't able to telegraph whatever has upset the market? You haven't been able to telegraph that information to them in, well, in the, a, in the a preceding way. Well, the your question cut out there a little bit, but I think I got the gist of your question. Well, you know, um, I know you cut me off, but I'm going to go ahead and finish anyway. We, we had a very uh, strong quarter. We beat consensus by four cents. Uh, we were right in line with our revenue uh, expectation, uh, even with some um, drag from our new reservation system. Uh, our expectation, uh, according to history, given the timing of when Easter falls uh, in second quarter, the timing of uh, 4th of July holiday is that we would see a little bit less growth uh, year over year in the third quarter and that's exactly uh, where we end up. So we yeah. will have less cost pressure uh, year over year in the third quarter. It's a strong earnings outlook and um, you know in terms of our plans for this year we're actually on or ahead of plan and uh, looking forward to, uh, I think, a really strong year again uh, in 2018. I think that uh, I'm looking at the share price, and it is uh, down almost 4%. And based on some of the commentary that I was reading this morning, people are saying, well, you know, uh, the revenue for each seat flown a mile will climb only 1% in the current quarter, uh, and that was below expectations. And there continues to be a pretty high cost for uh, uh, just running the business, including gas, is there any plan to lower those costs? 
Well, on the latter, that, that's not true, but I'll speak to that. But uh, again, we were up 1.5% uh, in the second quarter. So I would expect the, the, the third quarter year over year, according to history, if everything else is equal, to be up something less than that. So those expectations were just unrealistic, if that's what the disappointment is. Now, the other thing to, to remind you of is that there is uh, a drag of almost a percent in the second quarter and again in the third quarter. Uh, so if you adjust from our new reservation system, adjusting for that, we would be up more in the 2.5% range and the 2% range uh, year over year for second and third quarter. On the cost side, uh, fuel prices are up uh, some uh, what year over year in the second quarter, but uh, we would expect them to be down comparatively and down yet again in 2018. So fuel is actually a huge contributor to the strong earnings and very strong cash flow. Uh, we have some uh, cost pressure this year because uh, we were finally able to conclude some labor contracts after many years of negotiations uh, fourth quarter a year ago. And uh, so you're seeing sort of the unusual comparison year over year. If you adjust for that, um, we, we have actually very solid uh, earnings growth in the second quarter. And again, I would expect uh, that for the balance of the year. Are you looking into getting even bigger airplanes because there's this feeling that uh, you know people are looking really just to get from one place to another for the cheapest possible price, uh, and it, it's getting harder and harder to lower prices further. So, is there a way to pack more people in? <laughs> you know, uh, I think there, there's different. You're, I think you're asking a, a couple of different questions there, but the the answer, uh, the straight answer to your question is yes. I think over time we would expect that the average number of seats per airplane in our fleet will continue to grow, but that'll be within the existing fleet that we operate. So in other words, our, our, our future will be the Boeing 737 MAX 8, which has 175 seats, or the Boeing uh, uh, 737 MAX 7, which is a future deliverable, and it'll have 150 seats. Uh, so I would see a larger proportion of our fleet uh, in the higher seating category going forward. Today, uh, we have about um, uh, 20 to 25 percent of our fleet in the larger aircraft, and I think that proportion will grow in the future. Uh, if you could speak a little bit about the uh, the capacity issue, uh, in typical in many cases, airlines increase capacity in a variety of markets, uh, and then they bump up against uh, uh, further uh, uh, you know lack of lack of demand. Where are you seeing the capacity increases coming, and where have you held off? Well, our capacity this year was expected to grow in the three and a half percent range. Uh, was our early forecast, and we'll be coming in somewhere between three and a half and four percent, probably in the higher end of that range. That's you know low single digits. That is uh, very much in line with nominal GDP growth, uh, and we we have record load factors. Um, and at this point, the term in the industry is that we're spilling demand, meaning that we're not able to carry all the, the, the travelers who would like to fly. Right. So for us, uh, I just speak for Southwest, our capacity is very much in line with demand and the, the, yeah. the, the, 
the thing that we're we gonna, need unfortunately, to unfortunately, Gary, I'm so sorry to, to cut you off. But we're going to have to leave sure. it there. But thank you so much for joining us. We truly appreciate it. Gary Kelly is president and chief executive officer of Southwest Airlines. Uh, Uh, Right now, we want to take a look at the corporate debt markets. We have seen the extra yield that investors are demanding to own the debt over benchmarks shrink to near the lowest in the post-crisis era. And there are a lot of concerns that we are in a bubble. Joining us now is Cliff Noreen, Deputy Chief Investment Officer at Mass Mutual Financial Group, overseeing about $160 billion. And his goal is to make sure they don't lose money. Cliff, in an environment like this, How do you view corporate debt at a time when spreads look incredibly rich and uh, we are in a, you know, sort of slowly growing uh, world, but also uh, one that is rife with political risk? Where where do we go and are we in a bubble? Well, we think that we're in this very low growth environment with low economic growth, low interest rates, low inflation. We have very strong corporate profits, which is very good for corporate bonds. And that is actually accelerated and fueled the stock market. So we're in this environment where we're in a perfect world for the stock market and for commercial real estate. Now, back to corporate bonds, what is good is that there are very low defaults. There are some industries that are in a, in a risk position today, like retail, like real estate associated with retail, like commercial malls. And then the auto industry is under a bit of stress with a excess of used car, which has put price pressure on used cars and on new cars. But that we're watching that. There may be some downgrades, but we're really not overly concerned with the auto sector. The retail sector is a very much concerned. We don't have much exposure there, but that sector is going through undue stress from Amazon and from online sales of products in the traditional brick-and-mortar retail stores are really uh, in trouble. So you don't think that we're in a bubble? Well, corporate spreads are very tight. The fundamentals are strong. The question is, how long will this continue? And, and the stock market's going to trade very similarly. When we see a break in the stock market, we'll probably see a break in corporate bonds. The market that will hit first is most likely the high-yield market, which has the most risk, which is similar to the stock market. Cliff, uh, one of the things that I most recently read uh, has to do with foreign credit traders, people from outside the United States who want to buy lots of U.S. debt and they can't seem to get enough of it. Uh, is there still a, a nice, ready, willing uh, buyer uh, out there that you know American companies can, can sell them some more debt? The technical backdrop of the corporate bond market is the strongest I've ever seen. There's insatiable demand from- Unsatiable, demand insatiable from, demand. So that means that they're, they're gonna buyers, keep coming. Corp, corporate buyers from foreign countries are also buying. Our yields are higher than they are in Europe, uh, and higher than they are in Japan, so our bond market looks pretty attractive when you're getting a spread over treasuries. Now, the spread, as Lisa said, is very low. Investment grades around 100 basis points. High yield is 375 basis points approximately. That's very low when you compare that to historical basis, but the fundamental backdrop is also strong right now. So you were saying that this is supportive for uh, both stocks and commercial real estate, uh, and if there is a blip in the stock market, you will see a commensurate blip in corporate bonds. I'm wondering, as somebody who is trying to avoid losses, 
How do you maneuver in this type of market where you're seeing positive correlations between stocks and bonds? And I should add, uh, treasuries, while they often move uh, opposite to risk markets, have often moved in tandem with them in the central banking era. So are you changing your allocations in order to uh, prevent this type of uh, kind of double loss <laughs> scenario? Well, we're, we're we're viewing this market as an issuer's market. This is a great time to issue debt. If you're a company or a corporation and you want to issue debt, now's the time to do it. You're going to get very low interest rates, very low spread over the treasury rate, so it's a great time to do it. We are a long-term investor. We invest at Mass Mutual for decades, not for quarters. So when we buy a bond, we're doing work on it such that we're not depending on the secondary markets to trade it. We're planning to hold it to maturity. So we have a lot of our portfolio in illiquid private placement debt, infrastructure debt, commercial real, estate, commercial real estate loans on buildings like this that are secured by buildings. So these are illiquid investments. They get spread premiums of 75 to 100 basis points. If interest rates go up, the value of the bond may go down, but we're planning to hold these for a very long time. I'm wondering, though, I'm hearing this same refrain from a lot of investors that have buy and hold capital. Are valuations getting too stretched in the private markets as well? They are getting stretched. Companies are lending or borrowing more on a debt to EBITDA or a leverage basis. Um, there are covenants that we get in the private debt markets you don't get in public bonds. When you buy a public investment grade bond, it's just a promise to pay from the company, and there are virtually no covenants with it. In the private debt market, you do get a package of financial covenants, which give you a lot more protection than you think, and we think there's substantial value to those. I like that idea of protection, uh, and I'm wondering if you could just speak to that a little bit because uh, – you know, it's everything is great when everybody's making money, but then when all of a sudden, you know, we've gone through bond market declines and people who have lived in the ups and downs of the volatility, it, maybe you could just uh, talk a little bit about what do you think is going to happen next that's going to upset the system and, and how people are, are they ready to deal with it? We're overdue for correction and we don't have as much liquidity in the markets as we did before because the banks have pulled back their trading capital because of regulatory legal reasons. So we are overdue for correction. The liquidity is being provided more by the buy side than the sell side today. So we are actually welcoming correction. We welcome a correction to more normalized spread levels and yield levels. We will be able to buy assets at higher yields. And as long as you do your fundamental credit work on investing, you're going you're to be fine. If you but just buy things for it? a trade. But what's going to cause it at this point, given well, the technical back? Well, we have geopolitical issues and risks. We have rate risks. Um, we have political risks in our country, but the fundamentals are still very strong. I mean, you look at second quarter earnings coming out right in the middle of this, up 9% for the most part, seeing some very strong uh, stock response from companies that perform well and some very poor performance of companies that don't. So what's good is the market is trading on fundamentals of companies, and that's rational. Rational. Okay. That makes sense. I mean, rational. You know what's rational is you can actually, it's like a little bit of art and science to estimate the future value and a um, little less so. It's more just math when you're trying to estimate future debt because you know you're always going to have debt, right? Debt will always be with us. Thanks very much. Cliff Noreen, he is the Deputy Chief Investment Officer for Mass Mutual Financial Group, helping to manage more than $160 billion of, uh, of assets.
From Silicon Valley to Wall Street, the promise and perils of artificial intelligence are playing out on the world stage. But what will the next phase of AI adoption look like? Which companies from big tech to startups will dominate? And where do the risks and unintended consequences lie? I'm Emily Chang. Join me at Bloomberg Tech in San Francisco, May 9th, to answer many of the industry's burning questions. Alongside SNAP's Evan Spiegel, Xbox president Sarah Bond, OpenAI's Brad Lightcap, top researcher Dr. Fei-Fei Li of Stanford, and many more. More details and just a few tickets left at Bloomberg.com slash TechSF. Well, uh, I want to turn our focus now to corporate bonds and the electronic trading of them. We have seen a growing proportion of this traditionally over-the-counter market gravitate toward these electronic trading systems. And here in the house with us is Rick McVeigh. He is chairman and chief executive officer of Market Access, uh, which is really the dominant uh, in investment-grade corporate debt trading in the U.S. uh, electronically. And Rick, I want to just talk about your company just reported earnings. And and one big question in the market right now is the high yield bond market. Uh, This is a $1.3 trillion market in the US. And there's a question of, you know, how much can electronic systems move into this area? There hasn't been as much penetration there. So what's your plan? And what's your view on that? Sure. Thank you, Lisa. And uh, the high yield market has been slower to move electronic, but we have seen very good growth over the last two or three years. Uh, So like uh, investment-grade credit, uh, there is an increasing trend toward more electronic trading and high yield. Can you give us a sense of just the numbers with respect to how much of the investment-grade corporate debt market is traded electronically versus the high-yield market right now? Sure. I think if you look at uh, institutional investor trading, uh, a little over 20% of the U.S. high-grade market trades electronically, and uh, probably a little less than 10% of the high-yield market trades electronically. So it is earlier days in high yield, uh, but we are optimistic about uh, growth in high yield for two reasons. One, as we have moved toward all-to-all trading, we're finding more connections uh, that create matching opportunities in high yield. And when we do, uh, the transaction cost savings average about a quarter point uh, in those trades. So as investors experience those savings, they're trading more high yield on the platform. Just to be clear, all to all is opening up the uh, system to anyone on either side. So it could be an invest, an investment firm or a dealer that is uh, making uh, an offer and creating that liquidity and, and, and looking to buy on the other side. So um, with respect to those numbers, 20 percent of uh, U.S. investment grade corporate bonds traded electronically and less than 10 percent in high yield. Where do you expect that proportion to go, say, in the next five years? I think uh, uh, the growth in electronic trading uh, will continue. And uh, if we are at the beginning of a movement uh, by central banks to reduce monetary stimulus around the world and rates start to rise, I would be even more optimistic uh, about the growth in electronic trading. Uh, There are many benefits for both dealers and investors, especially as we are connecting global institutional participants into one central electronic marketplace. Uh, Investors and dealers are seeing more trading opportunities than ever before. Uh, Transaction costs are coming down. And importantly, liquidity risk in the system is being reduced. Uh, 
And I think those three key drivers will uh, continue the growth rate in electronic trading, and we will see a material increase over the next five years. So you're not going to put a number on it? Well, it, uh, you know, they, the, the, I think the direction of travel is very clear. It's hard to know exactly what the adoption rates will be. But I do think that if the market direction reverses and uh, we are seeing higher rates and mutual funds are experiencing outflows, that is the time where our trading system and other central marketplaces will show the most value uh, because that's the time when the secondary market really becomes the focus and people need liquidity from a variety of different sources to manage those outflows. Does uh, You remember, of course, the high-yield uh the collateralized real estate collateralized loan obligations, uh, the, all the debacle of, of the housing crisis, uh, much of which was funded by uh, loans that seemingly shouldn't have been written in the first place. I'm wondering if you could uh, tell us what would what's the uh, the bond market equivalent of a collapse today, and what is the uh, equivalent of it? What would that do if it was the stock market? We know what happens when the stock market crashes; shareholders lose their money. But when bondholders lose their money, the first thing they do is they call the lawyer. <laughs> and and well, I mean, and it's and this is the way the game is played. Yes. So I'm wondering if you could just comment on that. Sure. Well, I think we're in a, a totally different environment today than we were in uh, 07, where uh, there clearly had been an excess of leverage built up in the credit markets and uh, structuring. Uh, was, had grown beyond uh, uh, any normal level that uh, really led to the collapse afterwards. Student debt doesn't count? Well, student debt is, uh, is, is an issue, right? And um, uh, what has happened as central banks have pushed rates closer and closer to zero is investors have been reaching for yield and taking on more Yeah, but risk. we're going the other way, right? Well, I think it's we are in the early days of potentially going the other way. Uh, you're seeing central banks uh, talking about reducing their balance sheet holdings of bonds. Yeah, but uh, we're raising interest rates. That's I mean, we we just got the the Fed. I mean, that's clear. Yeah. They, they're going to raise interest. Well, rates. and and actually, Rick, the point that you were making earlier about how if there is an increase in interest rates or if there is a dislocation, albeit perhaps not as severe as in the credit crisis, uh, that there will be more electronic adoption, which I thought was a fascinating point. And I'm wondering, you know, some people would argue that right now we're already seeing an electronic revolution through ETFs and that people are simply trading ETF shares, uh, shares of uh, these exchange traded funds that own baskets of debt instead of uh, trading the underlying debt. How has uh, the adoption of ETFs and the trading in those shares affected the business of actually sh trading the underlying debt? on electronic systems. Well, it's, it's kind of interesting, right? Because uh, the ETF business has grown uh, significantly, as you point out, and is becoming a more and more important part of the overall market, uh, as it's a highly efficient way for people to invest in fixed income. So along with that growth in credit, we are also seeing the highest levels of trace volume ever. Uh, and uh, there, Trace is the bond pricing reporting system that is kept by FINRA, so it sort of shows the volumes. Secondary well, market right. volume. So there are two things going on there. Uh, one is the, is the direction of travel with the ETF business that you point out. Secondly, low rates have led to a, uh, a, a significant increase in corporate debt outstanding in the, in the U.S. markets and, in fact, the global markets. So we're seeing market volume in corporate bonds and ETF growth go hand in hand. Uh, it's also been an important uh, component of our growth 
because ETF uh, trading is all about efficiency and scale. And so most of that business gets done electronically. Uh, so it's been a good thing for market access and electronic trading, not just uh, with the ETF fund managers, but also with the community of market makers and APs uh, that surround the, uh, the ETF business. I want to thank you very much for coming in and spending time with us. Uh, Rick McVeigh, thank you. Thank he you is for the uh, chairman and the chief executive of Market Access. One stock I am watching today, Verizon. Biggest gain in eight years in the shares, up almost 6% after reporting earnings that blew estimates out of the water to get a sense of just how good they were and how long this can last. I want to bring in our own John Butler, Senior Telecom Services and Equipment Analyst for Bloomberg Intelligence. John, what stood out to you the most about these uh, earnings? The thing that hit me the most were subscriber additions. Um, you know, this is a company that quarter in and quarter out for, I'm going to say the last six quarters, they've been bleeding subscribers. And um, I think if you look at Verizon, their whole tack, their whole approach to the market has been and kind of remains the same. They're sort of the premium price provider in a market that is very price competitive. In other words, and they so, charge more. They charge more yes, than everybody else. Yes. They say, all right, we offer you something better, but we're going to charge you more. And everybody says, forget you. Right. And so the big change for Verizon came in February. They came out with an unlimited plan and it made all the difference in the world. But interestingly, and I'll let you continue. I'll stop interrupting you. But I thought it was super interesting. How much revenue are they giving up by lowering their price? Because their price, their actual income was in line with expectations, the, even though they blew the subscriber increase out of the water. Yeah, there is a price. And speaking of prices, you could see it in their average prices, which were, you know, they declined more year on year than they did in the first quarter. And so suddenly you're seeing that immediate pressure on price um, but, you know, in their mind, do you continue to give up subscribers that potentially could have a very long life to them? Or do you want to give up a little bit on price and then focus on where you're headed in the future? For them, as we know, the future lies in AOL, Yahoo and 5G. John, uh, Lowell uh, McAdam is the uh, chairman and the, the yes. chief, chief executive. What's his strategy? Because, and I don't mean for the company, I mean for him, for himself, because I mean, you know, his compensation is tied to performance of not only the company, but the stock. And as to Lisa's point, I can sell you everything if I'm losing money or if I'm undercutting my competitors. Are they taking a page out of the airline industry book? No, I don't think so, Pam. I think they really had to make this move to unlimited or ultimately you're just standing alone in a market as a share donor quarter in and quarter out. And that can't go on, you know, particularly with Verizon. They really needed to protect that subscriber base. So in terms of what Lowell's doing in the short term, the move to unlimited building out the network, getting it ready for 5G, I think he's making the right moves there. In terms of a true long-term strategy moving into adjacent markets, I think AT&T has a better bet. And we've talked about that in prior prior discussions, how AT&T has really looked at the core market in wireless. It's commoditized. 
but content hasn't. And so if you move into that market and you begin to pull it into the wireless world, you really add value and ultimately you regain control over pricing, I think. I was interested in the fact that they also lost fewer uh, subscribers in the landline side on the cable side. And I'm wondering how they managed that. Were they also lowering prices there? They didn't. It didn't really come up. So I don't have a good answer. Okay, for that's that. fine. Um, um, it's just that I'm just well, interested in how they all around. What they got to... asked about there, which was a good question, is what are you going to do longer term about um, over the top media? So a lot of people are snipping their cord or cutting out cable altogether and just relying on Netflix and Hulu and and Do you H know anyone HBO under Go. the age of I don't know pick something that's younger than me which is everything 30 something Thank you. Uh <laughs> do you know anybody that is going out and getting the cable company to come out and install a uh, cable pay the full freight for all of that? I did, Pam. Yeah, but thank you. You <laughs> fall into the same category I, I do. I did but... too. But this was a couple of years ago. But my point, my point is, who's no? Is anybody? Is there any growth in people getting cable? No, right? There isn't. And you're on the right track there. And I think uh, AT and T is too. They have Directv now, which is basically a cable package that can get delivered over your phone. So they're sort of playing to that younger demographic with that, while protecting that pay TV business. For Verizon, um, again, Lisa, I haven't looked closely at the Fios numbers. I believe they lost or TV declined year on year while the broadband internet side of wireline grew. So net-net, you have growth in that division. Um, and really, you see that trend across the whole sector. Broadband is growing. People are trading up to faster connections and paying more for it. But the TV is sort of ailing at the hands of the Internet. Well, but that's what's driving the growth in subscribers at Verizon is because they want to watch video on their phones. Right, right. So they've got so the great network and, you know, they pump it out. So it's sort of an intra-segment trade, if you will. So people are migrating, I believe, a bit from TV to Internet. But also, again... Separate from that, you do get a trade-up effect to higher speeds. I want to offer up a mea culpa because I've been really skeptical about Verizon in my role as a debt columnist. And uh, they have $110 billion of debt. And they've been packing it on. And uh, there's and been a pay big- almost 5% dividend. Well, and so it's been a big concern if they can't, if they keep bleeding customers, how are they going to be able to pay this back? So, you know, I'm watching the bonds closely today and they're not showing the same kind of pop, but I think it's kind of an interesting area to watch. And just to put and, it into, and, go ahead, John. Well, that goes back to protecting the subscriber base. Right. Really is if you ha suffer too much attrition, suddenly perhaps the dividend becomes... Got, goes, well, at least something you rest. talk about yeah. on a conference call. Right. Yeah. Uh, just to tell you that the shares of Verizon are up uh, 6% right now, though they're down 11% so far this year. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg PL podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at iTunes, SoundCloud, or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Pim Fox. I'm out there on Twitter at Pim Fox. I'm out there on Twitter at Lisa Abramowitz1. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio. Cool. 
Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code Radio20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival.